Welcome to The Other Coast, the Malifaux podcast out of Southern California. My name is Colgan, and today with me as usual is Jeff. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hey. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure why we still do the introductions, but anyways, it's just kind of a <laughs> thing now. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Crossroads 7. Um, you've been playing them quite a bit recently, and they're also your second keyword that has been painted out of your many years of playing Malifaux. I, well, so technically I have a really poorly painted first edition Colette box somewhere. So (laughs) (laughs) somewhere. Okay. Somewhere. All right. So then I guess second, possibly third crew. Uh Uh-huh. You you got a commission, so it might not be the same, but that you even took the effort to have them commission painted means that you probably like them quite a bit. So I guess we figured it'd be a good chance for you to talk about the keyword and the crew crew themselves for a little bit, especially since it seems like in general, I don't hear a lot of, about a lot of people actually running a full like crossword seven keyword crew in games. Yeah, I mean it's definitely not just me. People uh people do, do it. I I've heard that uh Someone's playing them quite a bit in the UK, like the UK is some kind of super league or something. And I think someone is playing them maybe exclusively or, uh, you know, at least partially uh, in that, although I could be mistaken. And I think in most large events, you might see, you might see them show up for a game or two. So it's not necessarily outlandish, but yeah, it's definitely not common. Yeah. I'll usually see people taking like, I guess the the crossroads have a model in their faction as like a tech piece but i very all right i guess it even you would say it's pretty rare to actually see people run them as the keyword and like run multiple crossroads sevens models in their crew yeah i mean i i would say that it's notable when it happens all right yeah so i guess to start off with how about you tell I guess all the listeners that aren't super familiar with the Crossroads 7 a little bit about their theme and I guess kind of how they play. Sure. So the Crossroads 7 were introduced kind of later in second edition and they are a band called the Crossroads 7. They play at uh, some inn called the Crossroads. I I have the um, adventure that that introduces them um, and it's something that you can run in through the breach and there's also some special scenarios for M2E. But I have to admit that I actually, it's been a really long time since I've read through the booklet. And my most recent use of the actual setting materials was in our Festivus episode to <laughs> to stump Jim because it was really hard to think of something that Jim would not maybe be super familiar with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, you know, their band, which is kind of cool. And, and, you know, I don't know exactly what kind of music they play, but it looks like it might be, you know, pretty fierce in terms of mechanics there's there's seven of them they're all named after you know one of the seven deadly sins and they're all seven stone henchmen and there's one from each faction except for the explorer society they you know of course they exist before the explorer society when the explorer society was announced i was actually really hoping that the explorer society's um effigy or emissary would have the crossroads keyword and that would maybe be their contribution to the crossroads seven but that did not turn out to be what happened. That's unfortunate. Well, it is, especially since the the um, emissary in particular uh, for the Explorer Society is not only a really good model, but would be really nice in Crossroads 7. It, it would go uh, some ways to resolving some of their issues as a crew. 
Okay, um, I guess we'll get into that a little bit later. So first off, let's try and sell people on this crew. <laughs> so I guess, what, what do you think are kind of the strengths of playing the Crossroads 7? And I guess, what do you think are kind of the selling points? Or why should you take Crossroads 7 into a game of Malifo? Sure. So, you know, from the outset, I should say that although I do run all seven whenever I play the Crossroads 7, and I do think most people who play the Crossroads 7 as a crew do run most of them, you're you're not under any obligation to do so. You could declare one of the Crossroads Seven models as your leader, and you know include two or three, um, you know as many as you as you wanted up to the up to the full seven, and just have other models in your faction. And and no one can say that you're not playing a Crossroads crew at that point. So anyone who's who's interested but maybe doesn't want all seven all the time, you know that's fine. Uh, but I do run all seven all the time just because I I don't know for me it feels like you want the band together. I'd rather not have my band split up and fight over residuals later. I feel so much more realistic, though. Especially with seven <laughs> people. Yeah, well, I mean, I like to think of it as maybe like Menudo, you know, the, the long-running um, Mexican band. I think they're a boy band, actually, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But they've been running for like 50 years, and they just bring in new people every once in a while, and uh, the band goes on. So maybe <sighs> that's uh, Malifaux's, Malifaux's version. But so the first thing that really draws me to Crossroads 7 is their multi-factional aspect. You know, I quite like multi, like in any game with factions, I'm always drawn to the multi-faction type mechanics. And, you know, at, at the Friday drafts at, at, at the store for Magic, I, I do, uh, you know, five color good stuff. You know, you just, just draft five colors and just draft the best cards in every pack that come to you and pray, you know, you get the, the lands you need when you need them. It has not really led to outstanding success, <laughs> uh, but you know it's it's fun. And again, I do think there are many players out there. Well, I don't know if I should say many, but there's a certain kind of player out there who is drawn <laughs> to uh, like these multifactional, multicolor materials for whatever reason. If you're a person like that, the Crossroads Seven is the only opportunity to play a model from every faction. Uh, you know, some other crews. You know, you can maybe splash in one or two other factions, but if if you want every faction except Explorer Society, it's got to be the Crossroads 7. Uh, another reason is surprise value. So this isn't really about gotchas or, or you know, ambushing your, your opponent with mechanics they don't see. You know, when, when you're in the game, try to be charitable and, and try to be clear about whether some things that could happen if, if your opponent does something that might trigger one of your abilities. But, you know, the simple fact that a crew isn't seen as often can give you an edge, you know, whether it's at kind of your local game store or especially in, the, in a large tournament where, you know, maybe people have a good sense of what the strong, strong crews are or what's strong in the current meta or whatever. Playing something that's outside of that, but that you understand well, can be, you know, an effective strategy. Yeah, kind of going off on that, like, I, I definitely agree with you. If you're playing something that's not seen as much, you can definitely get an advantage. But I feel like Crossroads 7 kind of capitalizes on that even more because the way their keyword ability works and how it's slightly different on each model is a lot of headspace. And I feel like it's a lot harder to, like, grasp and get, like, a good understanding of during a match compared to like other masters or other keywords so could you talk a little bit more about i guess kind of how their keyword ability works and i guess what you can use it for sure so they have a couple of keyword abilities you know the first one 
whenever you activate one of these guys, if they're within six of, of another Crossroads model, they get a free focus. So they're not exactly a bubble crew because, you know, at, at six inch auras, if you just need to be within six of one other member, you can string that across a pretty large area of the battlefield. So I wouldn't say that they have to be playing the bubble crew, but I do think that they do lend themselves quite well to that strategy. But my point is Crossroads models will very frequently have a focus on them for free, which is nice. It does add a little bit of AP efficiency to their actions. Other than that, each one of the the seven has like a specific mechanic that it, that it kind of punishes your opponent for doing. So for instance, like Sloth, if your opponent heals within six, they get a Sin token. For Lust, if an opponent draws a card within six, they get a Sin token. And then these models, they have the opportunity to use Sin tokens. Like if an enemy already has a Sin token when they do something, then the model, the Crossroads model can potentially complicate or, or cancel or gain the benefit instead. So, you know, again, looking at Sloth, if an enemy model that has a Sin token already would heal within six inches, you can get rid of a sin token to cancel that heal and instead heal someone else. Like, so you can actually, you know, heal one of your own people instead. Mm-hmm. And it, if you layer these, these effects on top of each other, uh, it can be a lot to keep track of. And even if you're not in, you know, a traditional bubble, just the fact that your opponent may not be super familiar with what each of them does, it can throw off their math pretty easily in terms of what they can and can't do. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a lot to remember. And I guess like most of the time, as long as you're within, it's pretty much for all of them, right? As long as you're within six and you do a certain action, you'll start racking up those sin tokens. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And then, you know, these sin tokens, they can actually do things that you don't really see otherwise in the game. Uh, So for instance, Wrath, his ability is he can actually spend sin tokens on on models that that are going to attack you, you know, one of your guys, and force that that model to attack someone else, even uh, a model in their own crew. Target switching effects are are really strong in Malfo, or at least I feel they're really strong in Malfo uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, there isn't really any answer to them. It's kind of surprising to me, but I don't know of any effect in Malfo that's like you can't change the target of of, of this attack. Mm-hmm. Whereas in other games that do have target switching abilities, that effect is is also frequently in the game um to some degree so that's one reason why i think target swapping is is quite powerful another reason is that oftentimes the math on what your opponent is trying to do uh is fairly narrow and so if you can say well you know actually you're not going to get to do this second attack it just complete it can completely wreck you know your opponent's plans and then with wrath he has the extra benefit of as opposed to like take the hit or protected where you're protecting one of your friends with uh, another one of your friends, you can potentially actually inflict damage or or penalties on uh, the opponent's crew from an opposing po- opposing model's attacks. And that's, you know, unique and interesting and potentially quite useful. For the redirect, does it have to be a legal target? So if, like, someone charges and makes a melee attack and you change the target, it has to be someone within melee range, or is there no such limitation? Yeah, so it has to be within line of sight and range of, of the new model, but you can ignore targeting restrictions. So I guess, for instance, like challenge wouldn't apply. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if you could say 
I, I don't know if you could like take the hit, like if you directed it to one of your own guys instead, and if you had another model would take the hit. I don't know if you could like take the hit or whatever. You know, all these targeting effects, um, <laughs> <laughs> they're a bit complicated in Malavo. We've talked about that a couple of times, uh, you know, here and on the forums. So this is one of the issues with where the rules are perhaps a little murky. You know, for the most part, I think the attacks are the attack that you're redirecting is restricted in in a fairly similar manner to the, you know, to the original qualifications. So it sounds like with all these auras going on, and I'm I'm assuming with things like where it's like, oh, if you heal this guy, you'll heal me instead, rather than actually gaining the benefits of actions like that. It kind of more makes it so uh, your opponent is not taking any of those actions within six inches. So you know, rather than actually burning sin tokens to get the benefit, it kind of acts more like denial in a sense. Because I, I can't imagine being told like, oh, if you try to heal this person, I actually get to heal someone in my crew. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it anyways. Frequently that's true, but there's also often times when you don't have any choice, right? So regeneration, for instance. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, or, you know, attacks that just naturally heal or, you know, an opponent's trigger that they might have declared for other reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and so while I do think that the surface level, and again, this is part of like feeds into the fact that the CrossFit 7 effects are a little complicated and a little hard to keep track of mm -hmm. uh, as, as like a, a strength of the crew. There are often going to be times where your your opponent, for whatever reason, either cannot avoid the effect or ultimately chooses to go into it anyways mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily always wrong to do that either because sin tokens uh do have potential other uses and, and the most significant of which is all the crossroad seven models have a tactical action that uh, is a pulse that can just remove a sin token and, and do three damage to a model and actually there's there's a trigger on the action to allow another crossroad seven model to take the same action so unresistible damage can be quite strong if you're looking at your models have a ton of sin tokens on them, you might want to burn through them, and and yeah, you know it might uh, might force you to give in one area, but it might help you avoid a bunch of unresisted three damage tactile actions. So I guess in general, would you describe them as kind of like a denial crew, or generally when you're playing the crossroads sevens, like what are you trying to do with them? How are you scoring your points? Are you fighting a lot? Or are you just trying to like squeeze out ahead in points while basically preventing the opponent from accomplishing their goals? Or how do you play them? So I would call them a denial crew. They're also a highly specialized crew. So for instance, uh, Gluttony, his his attack allows you to to push models towards markers and then remove those markers and and the model takes damage so that is a it, there's it how do i say this that's denial and damage right and your opponent has some control over it because they can just you know for instance choose maybe to put down fewer markers you know like if they're a marker crew they might be more careful about where they put down the markers or they might put down less of them or whatever but what it lets you do is it always gives you an option to answer like scheme marker schemes and, and marker masters. And, and that's just gluttony. That's just one model, right? And each of the seven kind of have these sort of niche effects. So like lust, you know, she, she piles distracted on people and, and she can force some card discard or whatever. For the most part, what the Crossroads seven models doing is not seen a lot in the rest of the game. Like greed, 
greed attacks people for soulstone use and she can do extra damage when people have upgrades on them and and you know that's not an effect you see commonly in the game so i would primarily call them kind of a denial crew they want to be if not in a tight bubble they want to be relatively close to each other so that they could support each other they don't have really what i would call a frontline beater you know i guess wrath kind of plays that role but compared to maybe the first maid or Archie or, you know, these models that you would, you know, Jonathan, these models that you would think of as, as just great beaters. I don't, you know, Wrath is not in the same class. Envy is a shooter. Uh, he's, you know, he's a decent shooter, but he's no Fuhatsu. Um, you know, he's, he's not a samurai. So I would say that you want to play them probably within maybe like a 10 inch bubble. They don't all, all have to be within six inches of each other, but the more, of the opposing models that you can put into multiple of your auras, the better you're probably doing. So it sounds like all of these models or each one is very specialized to certain types of actions. So when you're taking all seven of them into a game, does it ever feel like maybe one or two are just kind of useless against whichever master you're playing against? You know, I imagine like um gluttony's ability to push people and deal damage based off markers is going to be a lot more effective against you know crews like Karis or euripides rather than more straightforward crews like lady justice that don't really drop a lot of markers yes that situation is very common in particular with greed you know when we get into the section where we talk about hiring the crossroad seven models individually and in other crews um i'll kind of talk about why i i don't like greed but when i play them together as a crew Greeds is pretty specific, both in terms of um, you know her her passive aura, which is which is based around soulstone use, and and her attack actions. So I will frequently use greed as maybe a scheme runner, or you know, like if you're playing strategies like turf war, where they've got the five markers and you you can't really afford to give up the whole board. Greed can be someone that you can kind of send on on her own. Uh, in in one of the tournament games I played, I used her as as my symbols marker mm-hmm. runner because you know she's she's fast. She's got a a decent move, and if you do lose her, it's not the end of the world. But yes, I, I their specialized nature, as as you mentioned, does mean that there are just going to be times where what they're doing is not super relevant to what their opponent does, and so then you need to find a way to repurpose them to get some value from them out of the game. Mm-hmm. So adding on to that, considering any one of them can be the master, and that kind of gives you an interesting choice because you have to decide basically who will get that very coveted third AP. Does that mean like between game to game, you're usually switching your leader based on like the enemy master being declared so that you can kind of, you know, it's like, oh, they draw a lot of cards or they create a lot of markers. So it'll be good if I can get that extra AP on my like my anti-card draw, my anti-marker. Um, crossroads seven guy so you are right that you have a lot of leader choices here and if you are taking the crossroads seven not as a full crew but you know maybe if you're only taking a couple of them then additional models i think becomes a much larger choice in your faction selection if you're taking the crossroads seven as a full crew in my opinion your your leader choices shrink quite a bit I've never seriously considered sloth or gluttony or greed as my leader when taking all seven. Greed and sloth because I don't want them to have the third AP. And 
gluttony for I guess a similar reason. He's I don't think he's as bad a leader choice as Slaughter Greed, but I don't think the third AP is really great on him. My preferred choice for leader has really become lust. It's it's pretty infrequent that I don't go with lust now. For a couple reasons. First of all, the shadow effigy can give you a way to interact when you're in engaged. And it can also put out a conceal aura. And we'll talk about their defenses when we talk about, you know, like the crosswords have a weakness section. You know, they do have some issues with staying on the board. And so a conceal aura from from the effigy can be quite useful. I sometimes have given the effigy the upgrade. Sometimes I haven't. You know, since they're all henchmen, there's a lot of demands on your stones. But I do think if you, you know, that could definitely be another consideration as to whether or not, uh, or rather who you should make your leader, is whether or not you intend to give the effigy that you're going to get the upgrade. Uh, and for Lust, you know, I think the Shadow Emissary is, I mean, it's a great model. So if you take Lust as the leader, the Effigy is is doing really good things in the crew, and the Emissary uh, can also do really good things. I've seen Envy as a leader. I personally have never played Envy as a leader, because I think the Arcane Effigy is more specialized. You know, if you're looking at a bunch of conditions that you need to remove, maybe that makes sense. Um, a third AP on Envy is definitely great. So I don't think F- Envy is in any way a bad choice, but I prefer the Conceal Aura from the Effigy that you get from Lust, which is why I, I, I pick Lust over Envy. Uh, Pride is a fine leader, but Pride, in my opinion, is kind of the best model. He puts up this aura that makes it so that any of your guys within six inches cheats last. And that is just a fantastic effect. So Pride often has a target on his head, especially if people have played against Crossroad 7. But I mean, just generally, only even if your opponent has never seen the Crossroad 7 before, it only really re- takes a couple of activations of them realizing they're always cheating last for them to go like, okay, well, I need to take that guy off the board. So I don't really see a ton of value in putting an even bigger target on Pride. Mm-hmm. The Hodgepodge Effigy or Emissary would be fine choices. But again, I just, I don't want to put even more value onto pride because i'm not confident i can protect him uh and then wrath wrath is a fine leader choice uh, i don't think the third ap is as good on him as it would be on envy and i'm I'm not super enamored with what the mysterious effigy or emissary would do in this crew so i i don't tend to make wrath my leader in second edition interestingly only wrath could be the leader if you wanted to play the crosswords as a crew, but in third edition, any of them can lead. Uh, so that's, you know, that's my leader section. As I said, these days, it's pretty much just lust that I, that I pick as my leader. All right. So I, I guess before we get into, I guess all their weaknesses, which now that we're going to a little more, it sounds like it's like a very delicate balancing act. Like you need to keep them close. You need to make sure you're getting your sin tokens, but it sounds like they can't really take a hit. Yeah. So are there like any other things you want to highlight that you think are the strengths that you haven't mentioned yet? Or should we start kind of talking about how to dismantle this crew if you face them across the table? Well, so I don't know if this is a strength in the sense of like makes them mechanically more effective models. But I do think they are a difficult crew to play without much of a margin for error. Mm-hmm. And so if you're the kind of player who 
you know, is, is attracted by that dynamic. Uh, personally, I am actually not attracted by that. Dynamic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a bit sloppy with my play. You know, I, I frequently maybe don't spend as much time as I should positioning my people. Ideally, you know, it'll frequently end up that, Oh, I could have placed him, you know, behind this wall that would have blocked out this enemy aura, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, think about that well enough when I, when I ended my activation or whatever. Right. So if you're an imprecise player, like I can be at times, uh, this crew can punish you for it. But if you want a crew that's going to keep you on your toes and, and really not just expect this kind of play, but reward really precise play, you know, maybe give the crossroad seven a try. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's considered a strength, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it could be, it could inspire someone to play the Crossroads 7, but it also sounds like it might just cause a lot of rage quits after they realize that they moved wrong and now their aura actually isn't affecting anyone. I would say that probably enthusiasm for the Crossroads 7 exceeds their effectiveness. It's pretty rare where I would look at a pool and be like, yeah, the Crossroads 7 are the right choice in kind of an objective sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's there's always going to be this element of, well, I just want to play the Crossroads 7 to to picking them. Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, this is a game. You should play what makes you happy. But it, it does, you know, as we said before, Malifaux is explicitly not a game where every crew is supposed to have an equal chance. And I think with the Crossroads 7... It's it's difficult for me to imagine a situation where they are the correct choice, objectively speaking. So it's like most of the time you go into the game, you see the pool, and it's like, this is something I could run them into, but it's never been like, oh, this is the perfect time to throw out the crew. Yeah, that would be accurate. <laughs> in, in that terms, do you think it's really changed between like GG1 and GG2, or are they just still kind of, is there still nothing they're really strong in, they're just still kind of sitting around in the same spot? I think GG2 is is worse for them than GG1. Hmm. Even though GG1 was killy and the Crossroads 7 really isn't super killy. Mm-hmm. But the Crossroads 7, or sorry, the GG2, it has um, Tier 4 and Corrupted Idols. And the crew does not have much movement tricks at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very difficult for them to get across the board. In symbols for flank, they may be a decent option, but standard corner or wedge where they just have to cross the entire board again, they don't have, they don't have movement tricks. So it's, it's just, it's really rough for them. And then in terms of the schemes, there's no scheme that's like, yes, this is the crossroad seven scheme. And there are seven schemes that are like, you should never play the crossroad seven into this scheme. (laughs) So (laughs) I I would say GG two is a worse pool for them than GG one, but GG one was also not good. And, gg zero was also not great and you know this kind of makes sense right the crossroad seven are a niche crew and you do not want the game to be made for the niche circumstances you want it to be made for the the broad midlands right and people who want to play these kinds of outside things you can find good ways to do it and you can have good success with it but you never want to orient the game uh in towards that that model of play i think right all right so i guess now we'll get into their weaknesses in detail but so far i think the quick highlights i've gotten so far their movement isn't very good their defenses are 
probably a little under par considering like one of your big choices is for lust for getting the shadow emissary to kind of buff that a little bit and that they require very precise movements or you can just kind of i guess crumble before you even get into the game so (laughs) so i guess we can go into a little more detail um i guess let's talk about their defenses so what what is it about them that I guess, makes them so susceptible. I guess, you know, seven costs, I don't expect amazing defenses, but generally with henchmen, you know, just being able to stone a bit of damage or they generally have a few more tricks to keep them on the board a little longer than like equally costed minion or enforcer models. Sure. Well, actually, before you get into defenses, I want to talk about the first disadvantage that you kind of run into. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something that you encounter during crew selection. That's it your leader is a henchman, right? And we've talked about this in other podcasts where outside of just a couple of very specific cases, mm-hmm. henchmen leaders uh, have some issues compared to masters. Of of all the henchman leader options out there, uh, the Crossroad 7 are you know, among, among the cheapest that you could ever pick. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in one of the Battle Report episodes, but if you just... You know, understanding, of course, that cost is not a perfect indicator of balance. But if you just look at the cost difference between uh, a Crossroad 7 leader and then the effigy, as opposed to an enemy master leader and their totem, like you are frequently going to be giving up five or six stones to the enemy leader in, in, in terms of the cost difference. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you can say like, oh, well, costs aren't perfectly balanced, but when you're getting to a six, you know, five or six or seven stone difference, I think that is indicating that there's going to be a disparity between, you know, between the leaders. Mm-hmm. So that is issue number one, that they have all the problems of, of henchmen led crews and that henchmen just, and obviously, I mean, they should seem uh, not only obvious, but appropriate. Henchmen are just not as dynamic as leaders or as, as masters. They don't do as much as masters. They don't, they're not as resilient as masters, right? It's just masters are masters and henchmen are henchmen. Uh, and, and those stations exist for a reason. But on top of that is just the fact that the crossroads henchmen are kind of on the weaker side or you know on the cheaper side. I don't want to say weaker in the sense that they're bad models, but they're on the weaker side just in their, like they've been designed to be kind of cheaper support type models. And so when they're your leader, it's the henchmen issues, but even worse. Moving to like the question you actually asked about defenses, this is a big deal. Uh, so as you said, they're all seven stone henchmen. So they all, you know, most of them have seven health. Uh, NV has six, and uh, uh, I think Gluttony and Sloth have eight. But most of the crew relies on manipulative and stone use for their defenses, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So with manipulative activation order is huge. Because once they've activated, they've lost their only defense other than soul stones. Uh, and eight stones, if you bring all the models but no uh, upgrade on the effigy, that sounds like a lot, but they can go pretty fast. Uh, and if you did put the upgrade on the effigy, now you're down to six, and that's even harsh or even harsher. So for the models that only have manipulative and stone use, if you misplace them even by a little bit, like that can be it. Mm. Now, a couple of them either don't have manipulative or, in Sloth's case, have something else, right? Sloth also has hard to wound, which, you know, is is nice. It it does make him a little bit more resilient. Wrath has terrifying. Um, it's not great. I think it's 11. Yep, 
confirmed on the app, it is 11. Envy has armor 2, which is obviously fantastic, but uh, against a crew that has irreducible or armor piercing, he dies super fast because he only has 6 hit points. Mm -hmm. So maybe their defenses are appropriate for models of their cost, right? So again, I'm not arguing that they are underpowered as models. But the problem is when you put them together as an entire crew, you've got four of your models that are relying on manipulative, one that's manip manipulative and hard to wound, and then two that don't have manipulative at all. So your activation order can be tricky to figure out. And frequently I find myself activating Wrath first because I don't want to put one of my other models or, or you know, I'll activate the effigy at risk. When things get stuck in, I often have to activate Pride first in order to put up his aura, and then that takes away his manipulative, and that's a not comfortable spot for him to be in at all. Yeah, manipulative is one of those defenses that always, to me, reads a lot better than it is in practice. Like, at first, I have all this manipulative, and it's like, oh, great, you know, I'll just activate them late in the turn, and until then, like, you're just almost never going to hit them because you're going on negatives. But then when you get to the game, it's like, I need them to do something. But if I <laughs> activate them now, they're going to die. <laughs> well, and also, you know, a single minus is not the greatest hurdle in the world, mm -hmm. right? Focus gets over it. And, um, you know, some of the best crews get free focus, right? Ruthless gets around it. And the Bayou have upgrades that you can just stick on people to get rid of root or to get Ruthless. There are attacks with plus flips, right? So... <laughs> Manipulative is nice. I would never say don't give it to me, but by itself, it it can't guarantee a model's safety. And of course, well, all right, this Malfo, nothing can really guarantee a model's safety, but it's it's not enough to rely on, and it can't. You know, when I talk about this crew being unforgiving, if you throw a model out there that is more resilient, and you have mispositioned it or something, and it takes some damage. It might be in a bad spot, but it might live long enough to get saved either by its own activation or by another model. But the Crossroads 7, they're all sitting at a low wound count. So if you make a mistake with, with their positioning and they don't have manipulative, they drop like flies. And even if they do have manipulative, then it might require a little setup on the opponent's part, but they can get through it. And this issue with weaknesses, part of it may just be my play style that I have kind of you know, I, I really try to avoid losing my models. I know how stupid that sounds. No one wants to just lose models. But, you know, I, I'm very positively motivated in that sense. So maybe part of it is just my personal bias. But working around their weaknesses is a major element of my gameplay with them. It's why I do favor the Shadow Effigy. It's why I do actually like Lush as my leader, because she can throw out a good amount of Distracted. And once you're looking at Manipulative and Distracted, things are more complicated. If it's a range attack and you're looking at manipulative, distracted, and conceal, right? That's three minus flips. Very little in the game is going to be getting through that. So I think if you are going to play the Crossroads 7, first of all, you're until you kind of get down how they work with how you want to play them, you're going to have some rough games. But also, I think once you're competent at them, it's probably because you have figured out a way of minimizing your risks or or i guess um compensating for their lack of defenses in conjunction with that because the models are so specialized imagine having a low defense like 
you can spend some stones and burn it. But like you said, if you lose one of those models, it feels like a big part of your engine is going to start stop functioning. Whereas like in other crews, you know, your your thematic abilities, it might be a little bit harder to pull them off. But I, f- I feel like, you know, it's not like, oh, I lost this one model. And, you know, now I can no longer redirect their attacks. Because it sounds like, you know, the abilities on them are very strong and very game warping. But in in the same sense, like once you drop that function, it seems like everything else would start crumbling kind of quick. Is that true? Or is there a little bit more resilience in losing one or two members? It really depends on which member. So the Crossroad 7, they're not all equally valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think if your opponent can scalpel out the right figure, uh, it can have a huge impact. And, and the thing is, which figure is the right figure actually changes over time. You know, I think Pride is, is the best of the seven, but Pride is not always the most important model in all circumstances, right? I think that might be one issue that your opponent does have to contend with, that it can be difficult maybe to identify which, which gear in the engine is, is the one that needs to be removed right now. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they have all these passive effects can serve as a deterrent that might prevent your opponent from dedicating the resources it would take to just like really remove a model. But I think ultimately a determined opponent can get through the defenses of any of these models uh, with a degree of reliability that makes playing them a bit uncomfortable. So, I mean, I guess, I guess how, how do you kind of compensate for that? The person you're playing against is kind of more familiar with the Crossroads 7. I don't, it sounds like that there's generally, you know, one or two models that you kind of want to be gunning for in most games. So is it, are you just kind of on your back foot at that point if they know who to go for and they... You know, it's like, all right, if I just take out Pride, then all of a sudden everything starts falling apart. Is this just something you have to adjust to? Or are you really relying a little bit on your opponent not being super comfortable against the Crossroads 7 to kind of like up your chances of victory? Uh, Well, so this is the other coast, so it depends. <laughs> As a Crossroads 7 player, you do have options, right? You also have agency and terrain can be quite quite useful here. Uh, making sure that you have abilities that are going to, if not guarantee safety, at least really complicate things. So for instance, Wrath, right? Uh, if your opponent isn't isn't a ranged killie crew, if they're you know more a melee dive-in crew, Wrath can can guarantee that a model isn't hit twice, right? Like someone might dive in on Pride and hit them once, and then they get a Sin token. And so if Wrath is nearby, you can always just direct the hit to Wrath. Or, you know, if you have another one of your people nearby, you could direct the hit to another one of your people. That's, you know, not ideal, but it's something that you can do. If your opponent gets a successful Alpha Strike off, you're in a lot of trouble as the Crossroads. But if you're able to uh, to play KG, if the terrain on the board is, is you know, friendly to this idea, if the um, schemes and strategies can all be contained within a certain area and you can kind of prepare the battlefield and get there without having taken too much damage, mm-hmm. I think you have a very good shot at winning a fight within your layered auras. So no, I don't think you I don't think it's like, oh, once your opponent has seen Crossroads 7 two or three times, they're just always gonna beat you. Mm-hmm. I do think you will lose one of your your nice edges once your opponent gains that level of familiarity. 
But of course, that's going to be true with any crew. I just think it's true to a greater degree with the Crossroads 7. I mean, I don't know how well that maybe answered your question, but <laughs> you know, you just got to you gotta make your plan and, and stick to it, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess it just sounds like that. I feel like with most crews, even if you do have, it might be like one or two models that are a little, well, I guess it's kind of the same, huh? You have like one or two models that maybe are kind of have like a bigger hand in i guess keeping your engine going or towards your game plan and it's just a matter of being able to protect them or keep them long or alive long enough to actually execute those plans though i I guess when you're explaining that the path to victory as you see it is to be able to get into position and force them to fight into your oars without taking too much damage but that seems to be an even more difficult thing for them since you kind of mentioned earlier that movement isn't really one of their strong points yeah they do not and this might come as kind of a surprise if you're not super familiar with Crossroads 7, they don't really have a bunch of movement tricks. You know, you can potentially use Gluttony's ability to move your models, but then they'll take damage at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> in in most circumstances, sometimes, like, because of the way pushes work or whatever, you, you can kind of get around that. But yeah, they'll take damage. Um, one thing I frequently do uh, is use Wrath's Bring It to move uh, my models, especially... Uh, models like Lust who don't have a uh, a melee attack. So Wrath on a very frequent early turn play, like you know turn one or whatever, while things are kind of still a bit more distant, is for me to activate Wrath because he has uh, Terrify instead of Manipulative, so I can activate him earlier and not lose his defense. And then he'll go out and then he'll bring it onto someone else, Lust or Pride or or you know whichever model Envy whichever model I want to be up the board and if it's a model that has a melee attack I have to kind of arrange things so that they're not going to be able to get that melee attack but if it's lust I can just since she doesn't have melee attack I can just pull her out all the way that's pretty much it like there's you know lust attacks have some movement options but they're enemy only so you can't even you, you can't do that and mm-hmm. it is sort of surprising to me the disturbing performance there um the uh, tactical action I mentioned earlier to to pulse out damage to enemies that have sin tokens. Mm-hmm. It's kind of surprising to me that there isn't a movement trigger on that. But yeah, the crew as a whole is not mobile at all. I guess that just kind of layers onto it. So even though you want to be able to get into position, get them within six, so you can start passing out sin tokens and potentially denying actions, getting there in the first place seems to be even more difficult since. I mean, yeah, bring it or leers are really nice, but generally you want them on lower cost models, not higher cost ones, because I, I guess the general idea is you're trading their AP so that the other model doesn't have to move. But when all of your models are kind of the same cost, it, it feels it feels a little less, I guess, efficient to me anyways. No, I mean, you're not wrong at all. It's actually another reason why I bring the Shadow Effigy, because the Shadow Effigy's action to force a model to take an interact can also push models. So, you know, for like a seven of masks, you can push a model in and then have it interact. Uh, and frequently that can be quite useful because it'll drop a scheme marker potentially. So Gluttony might have a, something to throw enemies towards in the future or, you know, could be used to deny schemes or strategies sometimes, you know, depending on if a scheme marker can do that. But one thing actually, I, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times how they're kind of all the same cost. This is another issue with their defenses. Frequently, when you're playing an opponent, your opponent has some expensive models and some cheaper models, and generally the expensive models are easier or harder to take out than the cheaper models. You have a range of options at which you want to target. Mm. For the Crossroads 7, 
that range is much more narrow uh, than an average crew. And so when you're playing them as a Crossed 7, you can't say, oh, this is my more expensive tankier model. I'm going to send it out there. You, mm. you don't just have, like, that option just doesn't exist for you. Yeah, I just on the same note as the opponent, it's like, well, everything is equally killable in a sense. Yes, yes. And so that actually means that although there are models of varying importance, it's almost impossible to keep all of your models safe from everything and still try to do things in the game, right? Because mm-hmm. if that were possible, it wouldn't be much of a game. But a consequence of that is that your opponent is almost certainly going to have options and any option that they take off is is going to be impactful for you. Like you don't have a a mole man or a desperate mercenary or right? Like you don't have a student of conflict. You don't have a, like a Krulligan. You don't have some cheap model that you sent off to do outflank that you're like, okay, well, you know, you sent your pale rider to kill me. Maybe I'm getting something, you know, maybe I'm I'm pulling ahead based on the resource allocation. For the Crossroads 7, that is a much harder prospect. All right. So I think we hit most of the weaknesses. Are there still some more that are lingering around? Sounds like, you know, they fall pretty easily since they don't, their main defensive trigger is manipulative. As you activate them, that's going to go away and it's going to put a lot of pressure on activation order. They want to get in close or within six inches to use their auras, but they don't have a good way of actually getting that close. Um, (laughs) Are there any other things that you feel like people need to be on the lookout for if they're trying to play them so they can try and minimize losses? Or if you're trying to, or if you're up against them and you're trying to take the win? So actually, yes. So this crew faces a lot of suit pressure. And what I mean by that is that all of the models want the same suits. Crows are incredibly important to the crew. Tomes are probably the next most important. And then, you know, rams are, are kind of kitty corner. I'm not saying that they're useless, but they, they're much less important than tomes, which themselves are less important than crows. And then masks don't have much use at all. This is actually something that I kind of found a little disappointing about the crew because you would think that instead what they might do is tie the suits more towards the suits of the factions because mm-hmm. each faction kind of identifies with with some suits. I mean, it's kind of maybe somewhat a loose association, but it does exist to a certain extent. Right. But Envy, for instance, like the Arcanist guy, his only tome trigger is the tome trigger on destructive performance, which they all have to... to have another crossroads model take the same action mm-hmm. whereas you know he's the arcanist why didn't they give him some tome triggers wrath he he doesn't have any mask triggers that i recall yeah i'm just checking here he doesn't have any mask triggers the reason why i said crow's most important is that for the most part sin tokens rely on enemy behaviors which means the enemies could choose to not get them right but each of the crossroads sevens are one of their attacks they have a trigger to give the opponent a sin token and then to heal one point and that's a nice trigger but it's a crow and they all have it so they're all competing for that crow and you know you and i have talked about how like hands never stretch as far as we think they will mm-hmm. that is much worse when you only really care about half the suits in the deck yeah I, I think that's something that definitely takes a few plays to get used to. I, I know, like, you know, the first time I'm out with the crew, it's like, it's it takes a little time to even remember what the triggers are. And then afterwards, you kind of start seeing 
yeah, having so much pressure on needing certain triggers to, I guess, actually get the full efficiency out of actions can definitely be really draining. And I imagine mentally too, it's kind of difficult to kind of keep it all in your head while you're playing the game. Yeah, it also, I think, especially for those severes, it puts a lot of a lot of pressure on on those severes of the specific suits that you're looking at. And then the last thing I would say that you should be aware of, it's not like a glaring weakness, but they are actually not as synergistic as you might think. So for instance, Sloth, and we talked about this in another episode, Sloth's heal is really good. It's 10 inches, it has no test, it just heals the target for three, and then they gain slow. So you only do it to friends, so it's not like you can you know, heal enemies and get them slow. And obviously you don't want your opponent, you, you don't want your models to have slow. Sloth has an attack which can give uh, friendly undead fast as, as one of its just base effects. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why they didn't give Sloth a built-in trigger to give a, a model that shares a keyword with Sloth, right? Or they could have even just explicitly said crossword model fast. Right. You know, it's just, it's one of those little things where they could have made the crew a bit more synergistic than they did. And then, well, I don't know if I said that was the last thing, but this really is the last <laughs> thing as a weakness. Some of the models have bad actions. Like Greed's bonus action is garbage. Uh, it's frantic search. You know, you remove a corpse marker and then you discard a card from the top of your deck. And if it was a ram or a tome, you get a crew, you get a soul stone. So first of all, <laughs> yeah. So so it's it's garbage. If it had been any marker instead. Like, and then maybe they gave it a, a target number or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that would have been a much better action. I have never gotten a soul stone from Frantic Surge. I have done it before, not very often, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's it's a garbage action. And on a model that already maybe isn't great, I think they could have done a better job there. Gluttony, he has Grim Feast. So he's removing course markers to heal. I mean, again, that's that's just, it's not great. And it also... This, this kind of plays to the synergy, but it's an internal synergy issue. Gluttony's attack action makes people go to markers and then take damage based on how many markers they hit, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're eating his ammunition. So, you know, if he had had Juggernaut instead, I think that would have been just much better. So there's just a couple of little things in the crew that's just like, it wouldn't have made the models overpowered at all mm-hmm. to make them just a little bit better. Yeah, it feels kind of weird for a seven stone henchman that like you would have so many limitations on getting a soul stone when you have abilities like loot their corpse or you just have like soul stone miners and prospectors out there. Yeah. Now, I mean, her again, her sin token ability can get you soul stones and she has a defensive trigger that in theory could get you a soul stone or no, it, it can't. Sorry, you can just do damage and give sin tokens. It's not easy for them to get soul stones at all um i mean they're definitely no parker it kind of sounds like there there are some tweaks you'd like to make to maybe make the crew run a little bit better i guess you know even just have a little bit more synergy it, it is it does seem kind of weird that it was sloth right that he can make undead faster but when it comes to other crossroad members he can't really interact with them in the same way right yeah i mean part of that is the fact that we're just trying to have all actions do the same thing across all mm. the models. Now that's not 100% because there are a couple of cases where models will have the same action or the same trigger, but they'll do slightly different things. But for the most part, we've just been pretty consistent about that. But as I said, they wouldn't have to change the action. They could just give it a built-in trigger. Mm-hmm. 
and and it would work. So yeah, I do think uh, you know in this section of of things, I would like to see that maybe made crossroad a little bit better. They are kind of a kitty corner or niche case or you know specialty market type crew. So I'm I'm not saying that weird should be looking at them and being like, well, geez, how can we make them competitive, right? That's 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 not what I'm going for here. Uh, but I do think that there are some changes that could be considered that would make them, let's say, more competitive than they are currently. Mm-hmm. So one of them is, uh, as I said, they could increase the synergy a bit and they could improve some of these garbage actions that I mentioned. I think that would be easy to do. I mean, Greed has been errated once before because she was just even worse <laughs> than, than <laughs> she is right now. And and I think part of that is because, you know, what they're trying to do with Greed is a bit tricky, I think. Playing around canceling Soul Stones could potentially be really strong. Right. So I do think they have to be careful about her. But honestly, if all they did was change Frantic Search into just pure marker removal, mm-hmm. I think Greed becomes quite an interesting model not just for herself but within her faction mm-hmm. so yeah so first change i suggest is just improving the synergy a little bit and and fixing a couple of these small actions i don't tend to give crossroad 7 models faction upgrades anymore i've done it in the past especially with a masked agent on wrath you know like he'll charge in and maybe pull in someone else and that's a way to you know add movement tricks to my crew for instance but with the stones issue that the crew is looking at paying two more stones. So maybe they could make factional upgrades cheaper for the crossroads seven, maybe one stone instead. Something I've seen, I, I don't know if it was on the forums or if it's like something I thought up or whatever. I mean, I'm not taking credit for it, but <laughs> one idea might be to allow each of the crossroads seven model to have a free upgrade from their own faction in stones terms. That's a 14 point boost, right? That's pretty significant. Yeah. but. On the table, is it going to be doing that much? Like fourteen stones worth of work? No. There's a couple. Like there's a couple of auto takes. Right, greed would just always have leadline coat. But there's a couple that would be interesting decisions. Like, does envy take uh, diesel engine or soul stone or uh, I'm sorry or magical training? I think any of the ten thunders options are nice. You know, the outcast upgrades are mostly garbage anyway, so <laughs> they won't change very much. So yeah, it might be a hard sell to say. Hey, give Crossroads 7 14 stones worth of free stuff, but I don't think it would have that effect on the game. Yes, you sound very impartial arguing for this. <laughs> and, and could be interesting. Uh, and then maybe, you know, I, I guess this goes into the, the retooling actions, but uh, I didn't mention this. Retool the suits to make it so that the models are competing uh, less with each other for the same resources. And I really think that's all it would take to uh, make the make the Crossroads 7 just a little bit easier to play. Just 14 free stones. Hey, 14, 14 free stones, and I will do better in-game. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I'm actually thinking about Crossroads 7 games I've played, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I'm, I'm asking myself, what would have changed with these upgrades? Right. And, you know, obviously my models would do better, but would the results of any of the games I played change if I had those free upgrades? Probably not. But at the same time, if my models had those different abilities, would I have used them differently? And, and then the answer is probably. And so it becomes almost impossible to draw any meaningful conclusions from that thought experiment. 
maybe it's something we could try at the store sometime and just see if it uh see if how many stones do we need to give you so you can actually beat me in a game <laughs> <laughs> I, i'll take i'll take handicaps I, I, i'm not pride w's are w's I, I i don't care uh another option they could do of course is to let the effigy get get its emissary upgrade for free mm-hmm I just kind of want to see like the the crossword seven being able to summon groupies all over the board, you know, kind of just like, what is it? Lord Cooper has his castaways, just something like super annoying like those ones. Oh, uh-huh, like his runaways. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, Nexus has got the eyes and ears or something. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are models now that are that are pumping out three or four summons a turn, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the crossword seven could have had a like a groupie or something. So like yeah. almost famous, but uh <laughs> Get like yeah. a cro- the first crossroads seven minion. <laughs> I think it would be interesting, but I'm not holding my breath. I-, I would love to see that take. I guess like more than I guess rather than thinking about a competitive aspect, just just like weird things to make a game against like a crossroads seven keyword query just a little bit weirder. Um, I I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like at this point they could just be kind of you know like a joke character in a fighting game, right? You mm-hmm. play them because you can do like some weird stuff and kind of troll a little bit, but and if you win, like, hey, great, you managed to win with like the the kind of like joke keyword. Yeah, I do think that's a fair analogy. Like, they probably are the Dan of Crossroads Seven for people who might be familiar with Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. I don't think if you're playing them that you're playing a a a joke crew. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that they are a legitimate crew. With real functionality, but they have serious shortcomings and are probably not competitive against the top shelf stuff. I mean, it sounds like you could probably fare a little bit better if you weren't holding yourself to actually taking all seven all the time. But even then, yeah, like we were discussing earlier, taking a henchman master already kind of puts you on the back foot. And the only situations where we I guess where it seems to make sense to me, at least, is when you're able to basically, when you have henchmen with keywords that aren't represented by a master, so you can actually bring in like a fairly diverse hiring pool. But I feel like in any scenario where your henchman just only has a keyword that's already available to a master, you're kind of just giving up power already. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. You know, Puppet is one of the most commonly played henchman led crews Mm -hmm. and its keyword models are just fantastic but you know kind of going back to how i was mentioning that the crossroads seven are are kind of weaker on a henchman scale the leaders that you can get for that puppet crew are good on a henchman scale right like hinamatsu or the widow weaver Mm. either of those are are much better models on a just individual model by model basis than the crossroads seven models and and they should be because they're they're nine stones instead of seven but that's my point if you're playing the crossroads seven as a crew you're playing these seven soul stone models yeah hinamatsu with three ap is really scary you know jim likes barbaros quite a bit I, i've seen him talk about playing a barbaros crew multiple times i think i've mm-hmm. seen him play it once mm-hmm. um and and you know i'm not saying he's only played it once but i think i've seen it once and and Barbaros is also, you know, a nine stone henchman. So these other options that are, you know, on the upper edge of viability for henchman led crews mm-hmm. are all going to be led by a model that is 
substantially better than any of the Crossroad 7 models. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So I guess, are there any last kind of comments you had on making it so you can actually beat me with the Crossroad 7 crew? (laughs) Uh, I would say that, of course, no crew is really supposed to be picked into any scheme or any strap, but the Crossroad 7 in particular, uh, if you see Catch and Release... It's it's not a crossroad seven pool because that's just free points <laughs> for your opponent. Uh, assassinate is very rough on the crossroad seven. Vendetta is pretty tough uh, on the crossroad seven. Spread them out is going to be incredibly hard for you to do as a crossroad seven model because you do not have a ton of AP efficiency. Uh, you you don't have move tricks. Uh, you don't have much if any, like putting out schemes at ranged. So you kind of have to, uh, I'd say Break the Line is probably their best, their best strategy right now. Although Symbols and Flank, probably doable. You know, if you absolutely had to play them in Turf or Cryptid Idols, I would say only really look to do it in um, a Flank deployment. But yeah, I, I would say that you really have to examine the pool carefully before picking them. Um, so I guess the final section we want to talk about, and probably the section that's going to be the most relevant to the most people, is how about just taking the CR7 in faction? You know, you do your normal hiring, you take your master, and then you're looking, and it's like, hey, you might want to take the Crossroad 7 for, you know, certain actions or certain abilities. Do you feel like this is a viable thing to do, or do you kind of feel like the reliance on sin tokens and, you know, you're basically cutting down your ability to pass out the sin tokens by quite a bit if you're only taking one model do you still think they're worth it or do you think that it's something you don't really do so again it does kind of depend but i would say that uh on a whole i would consider the crossroad seven models entirely playable and in some circumstances really great choices Hmm. and you know as you mentioned this is Picking, playing them individually just in a normal crew probably does have more relevance to most listeners, which is why we put it at the end of the episode. <laughs> um, you know, I would say that people may not buy the Crossroad 7 box because they might not think that they really want to play the Crossroad 7. If you only play one faction, you can maybe pick up the model on like Gadzooks or, you know, a, a trade or like on eBay or something like that. But I would say it, it is really... If you haven't looked at the Crossroad 7 model in your faction or your factions, it really is worth doing because, first of all, they, they can have particular synergy that works well with maybe an individual master. Uh, Lust is not a bad pick at all uh, with the Yoko crew. And you know I've, I've seen several Vassal games uh, where they've done that. And I've only played Yoko once, and it, or no, sorry, twice. And I, I did bring Lust both times, but that ga- those games are kind of weird because it was a... A double master type game and i was trying something a bit different which doesn't nullify lust's value but makes it harder to talk about less value in what people might consider kind of a standard environment and mm-hmm. he's a great shooter uh sloth is a fantastic healer because again that that heal doesn't have a test to it and and anyone who has failed their their test on the heal that needs to save something understands just how powerful that can be and yeah it gives slow but if you are healing an undead model, which you're frequently going to be doing in Rezzers, uh, he can get rid of that with one of his attack actions. Wrath, I mean, you've seen me play Wrath several times when I when I hire Pandora, and I, I, I use him kind of similarly to how I do in the CR7. You know, I use him to move around Pandora and especially Candy, because you don't want Candy activating. 
and giving up her manipulative and her fantastic ability, which stuns people and makes them discard cards. And then Pride, I think Pride can be a bit tough to use in a normal crew, just because you might, it might not be super clear which models you want to make sure are in his aura, but mm-hmm. he's fantastic. And if you just send him off on his own, which you can do, his aura uh, means he'll always be cheating last, and that can be a great way to keep him up. I would say Wrath, Sloth, Pride, and Envy are all solid choices that probably have utility in a wide range of circumstances. Lust and Gluttony are more specialized, but probably could still play games, rather could still see play in a good number of games. And Greed, Greed is a hard model to really ever recommend. You know, Even when I see people on Vassal playing Guild against, say, a Marcus crew, they don't bring Lust, or sorry, Greed. Uh, so her, her abilities against upgrades aren't enough to bring her in. Her ability against Soulstone use isn't enough to bring her in, even against things like Soulstone cast using Sabertooth Cerberuses. So I think Greed is a hard sell, but any of the other six have reasons to see play, and the top four that I mentioned are probably just solid picks in a wide range of circumstances. Have you ever used any of their Crossroads 7 models? I have them, but I haven't actually used them. Mm-hmm. I know my wife is very fond of the Lust model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like what I'd want to take them for is very specific, and I generally don't think that far ahead in games. <laughs> um, you know, I've been jumping around between different masters and different keywords so far, and it's like right around where I get to the time where I get enough reps that I'm actively thinking about how to... I guess specifically counterplay against my opponent. I've already kind of jumped to the next master and like restarted the learning process. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel like at the point where I would be able to like actually process and think like, oh, maybe I'll take, you know, this out of keyword pick. Or I can actually counter this model or, you know, like shore up this weakness in my crew that's really only exposed against this master. Um, I've already <laughs> kind of moved on. So I know. I haven't actually played the Crossroad 7 as a crew against you, but I know I've taken uh, at least Sloth and Wrath in individual games. Mm-hmm. You know, did you find that they did anything of value or were you just supposed to be like, okay, well, that's a seven stone scheme marker maker? I remember them being really annoying, but I don't really recall if I felt like it was like game changing in a sense. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It wasn't so much like, oh no, because this is here, it's all gone. It was more like, I remember like the first time you were talking about Rassaville, and I was like, God damn it. <laughs> like, this is so annoying. Like, I just can't like shoot anyone unless I just want to end up hitting myself. Hopefully, you know, you'll get a chance to try out some of the Crossroads 7 models. I, I would definitely encourage anyone to start hiring them more often because I think they are quite cool. I guess the last thing I want to mention uh, in terms of the Crossroads 7 is that because they are a band uh, and music related, I have a a playlist, a Malifo uh, playlist. (laughs) Of course you do. Of course I do. It is quite lengthy and I mean, I'm no music historian, but there's, uh, you know, some good Tin Pan Alley stuff. Most of it is actually not period appropriate just because it's pretty tough to find music from that era. You know, the recordings that survive aren't very good and people don't tend to play music from that period very often but there's a lot of music from the years just after world war one you know some some jelly roll morton some some ragtime uh uh you know there's some waltzes for the upper class people in malifaux and there's uh you know some western music there's uh, uh soundtracks from 
similarly themed shows like Penny Dreadful or um oh geez, the show on Amazon with Orlando Bloom, Carnival. No, no, that's on HBO. Oh, Carnival Row. All right. That yeah, that's what's called. Yeah, so uh if you play through the breach or malaphone, you want background music, uh check out the playlist because I'm pretty proud of it. I, I guess that's a reward for everyone who's listened this long. <laughs> you get to <laughs> hear about your Malifaux playlist. I, I, I love my Malifaux playlist. All right. Well, so I, I guess that about wraps it up for this episode. For everyone who's listened until the end, thank you very much. And as usual, a shout out to everyone that's supporting us via Patreon. And as always, you know, we made this podcast because we kind of wanted, you know, talk about Malifaux with the greater Malifaux meta. So. We're always looking forward to any comments or messages that people send us. If you have any questions or just want to, I guess, if you have any questions about Crossroads 7, I guess you can just (laughs) email Jeff about it. And then he can talk to you about how he should get free stones so he can finally win games with them. Yep, 14 Uh, free stones. It sounds reasonable. (laughs) Uh, I also will have a link to my playlist in the show notes. So anyone can, anyone can enjoy it. I, uh, I wonder how many um I wonder if it has any subscribers or anything. I don't even know how to check that, but uh, <laughs> um I, it's I guess it's five hundred and thirty-three songs, twenty-nine hours and twenty-five minutes. Have you ever listened through like the whole thing in one sitting? No, because that would be a twenty-nine hour <laughs> sitting. Um but you know, I originally made it as background as you know as, as like background music for uh through the breach campaign. So you know, I probably have heard everything at some point. Are are they organized in any specific order? They are not. And Spotify does not actually make it easy to organize your playlist like that, which I kind of find annoying for my D&D playlist, which has 2,786 songs. It would be nice to be able to, to organize it better. So So many questions, but... So irrelevant. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, thank you everyone for listening, and I guess this is where I say good night, everyone. Night, everyone.